In the last weeks, we've been looking at various psalms during the living of these days. And prior to our detour into drive-in church in the quarantine days, we were in Matthew chapter 17. Well, what are Jesus and his disciples up to now? Well, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18 with a question. What kind of encounter might you and I have with the Lord of the universe as we read this beginning of chapter 18 of Matthew? What might the Lord want to show us? Matthew 18 begins, The disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask a question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's some kind of question. (laughs) The greatest. The greatest. When I hear that, I can't help but think about Muhammad Ali. And to get my brain pumping as I was preparing to, to, to work on this sermon, I went to YouTube to refresh my memory of Muhammad Ali. There's tons of old interview footage uh, on YouTube, and, and he <laughs> he was just truly one of a kind, a, a charming, larger-than-life personality. Tons, tons of charisma. A mega, a mega personality, if you will. We, we hear that word mega, megabyte, megaphone, megawatt, megasoda, mega meal, mega million. Well, in the original language, the word for great, when the disciples ask about greatness, the word for great is mega. And, and mega means exactly what it says. It's great. And, and mega, you name it, it's big. And it's funny. The questions the disciples ask, the, the questions that we ask, they do say a lot about who we are. Who is the greatest? They pull the curtain back and reveal our core concerns. Uh, on one hand, you've got this whole group of disciples. They're, they're with Jesus. And then you've got the inner circle, Peter and James and John. And in Matthew chapter 17, they were the three who went with Jesus up to the mountain, the hill to which we refer as the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, all the glory of heaven is made manifest there on on that mountain. In Jesus, he shines brighter than any fuller soap. Moses and Elijah, they appear, and and Peter and James and John, they, they witness all of this. Literally, heaven coming down. Well, you've got the other disciples who probably feel like they stand on the outside. The questions we ask do say a lot about who we are. They they do reveal our core concerns. Uh, Those questions, like we would ask, maybe it's not necessarily about greatness. Maybe it's more about individual significance, wanting to be special more accurately being seen by others as special, if we were to be honest. How we're noticed. How we are set apart. Maybe we're more concerned with fairness. Maybe we're more concerned with being right, or honestly, everyone knowing (laughs) that we were right. Jesus as he responds to this question about the greatest, he, he calls a child over. He summons a child over to himself, and, and he says, Truly I say to you, unless you are 
converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, Jesus, he's being very firm. He says, become like children. Become like a child. Act like a child. Behave like a child. Conduct ourselves like children. Really? Don't we have a great deal of that already? Don't we see full-grown adults in our culture forsaking all sorts of responsibilities? I don't believe that's what Jesus has in mind here. Despite all the junk that's out there online, social media has some great benefits of, of keeping folks connected across time and distance. An old musician friend of mine, he became a father recently, and he posted beautiful baby pictures. Beautiful baby pictures, but that baby is not ready to ride a bike or cut up a prime rib or uh, sit up at a drum kit with sticks in hand. Sweet Baby is dependent on mom and dad for everything. Sweet Baby is dependent. Sweet Baby is not self-reliant. And as Sweet Baby grows, Sweet Baby is going to need guidance and coaching and training. Before Jesus says that we must become like children, he says this other phrase, unless you are converted. To the disciples, he says, unless you are converted. And that word converted, that, that means to turn, to, to twist, to change direction. Unless you become like a child, unless you, and, and become, begin to be. When, when that word, we see the word become, that literally begin to be something. So, unless one literally begins to be like a child in training, this one will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying? Well, contrary to what makes sense to us, salvation and self-reliance do not go, they do not go hand in hand. I'll say that again. Salvation and self-reliance do not go hand in hand. Conversion, that that turn in the road, that the, that's a twist in the road of our lives. Jesus is telling his disciples that entering the kingdom of heaven requires a turn, a twist, from their drive for personal sufficiency, they're, they're a turn from their plans, a turn, a twist from their agendas, their quest for significance. And then Jesus says, Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself. Whoever humbles himself in this manner is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The act of humbling oneself, that what does that entail exactly? There's going to be this intentional turn, this, I, I like that word twist, because if something's twisted, that usually means there's some resistance. And we, we really do have things in our lives which we hold to, which cause resistance to the things of God. So I think, to be fair, there's going to be an intentional twisting of our condition to a new condition where we will begin to be, we will become, as a child. Well, to begin to be a child, that requires a birth. So 
a, a, a rebirth, this picture of being born again as a dependent child willing to be trained. And humility requires making oneself lowly, making oneself dependent. Goodness. Um, that's not really what I thought it would be. That's not maybe what the disciples possibly had in mind when they signed on to follow. To humble oneself, to, to lower oneself, that's, that's not really what we thought. Jesus then says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. One such child as this, one such child who has humbled himself. And, it, and again, it, it, as Jesus has used this young child as an example, it, it might be a child physically. Uh, it might be one of, of those young ones who come to church who is starting to have a heart sensitized to the things of God. But regardless of age, it is one who has realized, is beginning to realize, the need for Jesus. And the one who receives this little one in Jesus' name, receives the, this one who accepts, this one who welcomes or shares with, this one who makes a place for the little one in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, if, if I'm in Jesus' name, I'm saying that I'm professing affinity with Jesus. And if I'm professing affinity with Jesus and I am going to make a place for another one, a lowly one who is professing affinity with Jesus, then I will receive Jesus. Hmm. The logic of that statement, if you and I make a place for this one, we've made a place for Jesus. We can turn that around. Let's redo the order of that. If you and I make a place for Jesus in our lives, we've made a place for this one. We will make a place for this one. If you and I make a place for this one, we've made a place for Jesus. If you and I make a place for Jesus in our lives, we will make a place for this one. To receive the lowly is to receive the Son of God. To receive the Son of God in our lives means that we are able and willing to receive the lowly. We'll be able to love our neighbors as ourselves. The lowly, the, the small, the the many, if you will. We should be more concerned with the lowly, the many, than with the mega. Jesus then says in verse 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in, in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. If one causes to stumble, uh, if one causes to sin, one of these little ones, one of these lowly dependent ones who are dependent on me, who believe in me, it would be better for the one who does that, who causes that, to have a millstone hung around the neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. 
for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Verse 7, Jesus is saying, alas, woe. Woe to the world. Warning. Uh, stumbling blocks. We, we've we've heard of them. We we've most of us have used that term in conversations, and we just heard Jesus refer to the act of stumbling. What what is a stumbling block? Well, it's a stick for bait for a trap. It's it's a a trigger of a trap. It's a snare. When I when I hear that phrase trigger of a trap, I I replay some scenes from those old Looney Tunes cartoons. You know, it's it's high noon out in the desert, and, and Wiley Coyote, he puts that mound of bird seed out there on that lone desert highway in the heat of the day. And you know that mound, it's got that stick, that sign that reads, Free Bird Seed. And the box is propped up above it, and it's it's held up by a stick, and it's ready to drop. And, of course, the, the roadrunner never gets caught up in the trap. But but you and I, we're, we're not always that fortunate, are we? Those, those traps, you know those traps, those snares that seem to be individually tailored to each of us. Those traps that show up on the highways of of our lives. Jesus says that it is inevitable that these stumbling blocks come. Why is it inevitable? Well, we are who we are. Sin entered the world, and sin has never left. And as the hymn states, the lyric, take away our bent to sinning. Our bent, our bent for sinning, our how we're wired. We are wired to sin. It's who we are. That's our nature. Paul states it so succinctly in the third chapter of the book of Romans that those great salvation scriptures, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus says, Woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. So here's an awkward question. When have I been a stumbling block? When have you been a stumbling block? When, perhaps, has my influence not been the best? Maybe there's been a time where you've not had the best influence. Well, then, Jesus turns up the heat in verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled, crippled or lame, than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And then in verse 9, Jesus says, If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and, and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into a fiery hell. Two of the most confusing scriptures ever. There's a word, hyperbole. You know, it's an exaggerated statement or claim not meant to be taken literally. And and my kids and I have talked about this before, and so I ask them again, what is a hyperbole? And one of them says, one of them comments, you know, dads ask us this a million times. <laughs> the kids saying they've had a ton of homework. Uh, it's like my wife saying to me, I've told you a thousand times. What is Jesus saying? 
if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Name myself because of what I might do? What? Over the years, we've heard tell of, of certain folks, certain religious groups, who have approached this scripture in this fashion. There is physical and emotional punishment done in the name of religious discipline. Well, to do self-harm is not what Jesus is saying. When a statement reads that it is better for you and me to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire, the point is that it's better to be crippled and lame and dependent on Jesus than to be proud in an imagined completeness, arrogant in some unrealistic self-sufficiency, and, and then to still be cast into the eternal fire, cast into hell. Likewise, if the eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. Uh, again, when we read that it's better to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell, the, the point is, it's better to be blind in one eye and dependent on Jesus than to have both eyes wide open, focused on self, but really be totally blind spiritually to the things of God, the things of Christ and salvation, and then to be cast into the fiery hell. What's more important? Uh, you know, really, what's the harder thing to do without? The hand, the foot, the, the eye, or the ego? For these disciples, would the concern for greatness and influence be a, be a stumbling block? Would it be a stumbling block? The, these disciples, they've begun to taste fame. They're walking with the king. Would our concerns function likewise? Would, would our concerns be a distraction? Would our concerns, our druthers, maybe me wanting to have my way, would that be a stumbling block? Would that impact my influence on my relationships? Absolutely. Again, in the quest for perfection, this idea of mega, of great, that does not mean completeness. Jesus says in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See to it. Beware. Make sure that you do not despise. And despise, that's a verb. The noun form would be contempt or scorn or disdain. Make sure that you don't have contempt or disdain for one of these little ones. And again, by the context, this doesn't have to be little in terms of age, but, but little in terms of humble, lowly, dependent on Jesus. Be careful not to disregard or have contempt for these. These, these fresh to faith in the Lord, these ones who are sensitized to the things of the Spirit, we're to respect them. We're to have patience with them. We're to not manipulate them. 
Then Jesus says, For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. There's a lot I don't understand about these angels. The heavenly messengers, we know they're real. We know that they are active. We've seen the angels at work throughout Scripture. And we know that they worship the Lord in heaven. We know that they are in His presence. There's a lot I don't know. But for this warning about respect for those who are lowly, respect for those who are lowly and humble, those who realize their need for completeness in Christ, those young in the faith, possibly physically young as well, for this warning that's given to be connected in the same phrase with the reminder of angelic presence and activity, for Jesus to share all of this in the same breath. I know, I know that angels are serious business, and this is a warning that is serious business. This I do know. Verse 11, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. There are some translations that don't have this verse. It, it's, it's an issue of manuscript sources, original language, things like that. And for our purposes, this verse is a bit of a restatement of a verse found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we read, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why would everything that we've read thus far lead to this? Why would this conversation with Jesus close with this verse? What was the very first question that we saw at the beginning of the scripture, there in the beginning of chapter 18? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's not what you think. Verse 11 tells us, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Regardless of how great the disciples thought they were, or how you and I might feel like we've got it all worked out, we are all lost without Christ. At the end of the day, this scripture leads to this. We are all lost without Christ. There's really no need to think that any of us have it all together. A little humility is good for everyone. It's a reminder that greatness doesn't come from what we own or what we do. What did the Apostle Paul say about boasting? At the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, by the Lord's doing, you and I are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Paul says, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, it's not what you think. It's not about the greatest. Not about the greatest in terms of you and me. We're to boast in Christ. He's the greatest. 
in the kingdom of heaven because of what he became for us. In our lostness, the king of heaven became sin for us. He had all of the rights and privileges of being in heaven, and he set that aside. He set that aside to become man to dwell with us, going to the cross on our behalf and being raised from the grave with resurrection power, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating hell. He, my friends, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven.